in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. While you're doing that, little little story, uh, there is a, a, well, he's well-known if you're a classics major. He might not be well-known to you. A well-known Roman politician named Cato the Elder, not to be confused with his great-grandson, Cato the Younger. And Cato lived a couple hundred years before Christ, and he fought in the Second Punic War. That was a war between the city of Rome and the city of Carthage. They each wanted to dominate the Mediterranean. Uh, Rome won the First Punic War and, you know, put all these conditions on Carthage. And, oh, of course, 50 years later, they had another Punic War. And again, Rome won and put all these conditions on Carthage. And Cato had fought in that war as a young man. And now as an old man, he was convinced that Carthage was rearming and it would only be a matter of time before the Third Punic War broke out. Um, And so as a senator, you know, they're debating things on the Senate floor in Rome and whatever he was talking about, it didn't matter whether he was talking about building homes for orphans, whether he was talking about the budget, whatever he was talking about, he ended every single speech he gave in the Senate with the words, gentlemen, remember, Carthago delenda est, Carthage must be destroyed. Right? I'm not going to go so far as to end every sermon with my little cute tagline in another language, but Rob, if you will, ladies and gentlemen, sunao dukumen. You remember this one from a couple weeks ago? We expect good together. Um, we, Rob, if you'll put up the next one for me. When I told you that two weeks ago, we owed $628,000 on the mortgage. Today, this morning, we owe 598,500 on the mortgage. Yeah, well done. Well done. So, Cato was asking you to go to war and die to protect Rome. I just want $600,000. Okay, so, you know, come on, just think of it in terms of, it could be a lot, a lot worse. So, he had his Carthage must be destroyed. We have our Sunel Ducumen. I'm not gonna say it to you every Sunday, but I'm gonna remind you frequently, we gotta get this done. We got to pay this off and move on. There is other work for our church to be doing. All right, Galatians chapter 5. Read along with me the first 12 verses. Galatians chapter 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you'll take no other view. The one who's throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, they will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. And as for those agitators, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. No. You know, we had circumcision, now we got emasculation. I mean, we're well on our way. Quick recap, and I know, if you're here every week, you're probably like, oh, here we go again. But for them, it probably took 20 minutes to read this letter. You know, when Paul says something to them, 
Of course, he references something that just happened. Of course, they remembered it. It was just moments ago. Boy, for us, we're knocking it down to these little pieces to really dig into it. But it's so easy to forget what's going on. It's so easy not to remember what he's talking about. You know, if, if you and I, you probably realize, you know, I studied linguistics. I'm kind of a grammar nerd. I can get into a huge argument with you if you want over the use of who and whom, the subjective case and the objective case. I will gladly pontificate. If you need someone to pontificate about the objective versus the subjective case in English and why it's important, I am your man. We could get into a big argument about that. Right? And I would tell you why grammar is important and why it conveys meaning and all these things. If we got into an argument a little while after that on the difference between my wife and I invited him and he invited my wife and me, not my wife and I, like everybody says, I'm not going to go back and rehash all my old arguments. I'm going to say, just like what I told you, grammar matters. That's what Paul's doing. Remember that last week we saw that. He says, these women, they represent two covenants and they just keep trying on going. Because he just told them all about the covenants a few minutes ago. He's not going to go over that again. For them, it literally was less than three minutes that they just heard all about these two different kinds of covenants in the world. These two different ways of dealing with contracts and that people deal with each other. He just tosses it out there. We go over this every time so we know exactly where he is and why, what he's saying. Up until now, Paul's been making argument after argument after argument on why you must, 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 must understand that you are saved because of what God has done, not because of what you have done. Because there's these people who have come in the church after Paul, Jewish Christians, who are saying to the non-Jewish Christians in the church, hey, you need to become Jewish first. Everything Paul told you is true, but there's more. There's some prerequisites. There's some fine print. You need to become Jews. You absolutely need to be circumcised. And they're referencing Abraham in the Old Testament. Look, Abraham, right? Paul said, saved by faith, of course. And he was circumcised. You need to do all these things. Paul's just been making argument after argument after argument. Why that's not true? He's argued from scripture. He's argued from personal experience. He's argued from contract law. I mean, he's pulling out all the stops to say no. And you remember what he's, he's called them unthinking a couple times. We translate it foolish, but literally it's you're not using your brain. He's like, you guys, you're mindless. Why would you believe this? This doesn't make any sense. He said to them at one point, you know, has somebody put a spell on you that you would think that this was true? It doesn't make any sense at all. All over he's been arguing. The, the point is, so what? Like, okay, so we all agree this. What does it matter? Because let's face it, there are theological controversies aren't terribly applicable in real life. So in the 300s AD, the burning question was, is Jesus a man or is he God? Because scripture seems to say both repeatedly. It says he was a human being, a a true, complete, absolute, 100% human being. And yet it also says over and over again, he was an absolute, true, 100% God in the flesh, Jehovah come down to earth. For a hundred years, they argued about this, and they finally came to the conclusion that what the scriptures was saying, that's what it meant, that he was both. He was completely God and completely man. That matters. It matters that we understand that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's not just some guy that God chose. And he's not God on earth pretending to be human. Right? All right, obligatory Star Trek reference as a science fiction nerd for all of you. Anybody remember the character of Data? from the old Star Trek show, The Next Generation, right? Data's an android. He's not human. He doesn't need to eat and drink. But when he's with people, he will pretend. 
right? If you invite him to a dinner party, he'll sit there and eat food and drink things because that's what everybody's doing and he just wants to fit in. But he doesn't need it. He just stores it somewhere until he can go off later and dispose of it. God's not doing that. God's not coming to earth and pretending he's tired. He's not pretending he's cranky. He's not pretending that he needs to get some sleep or that he's hungry. He really is. He is fully God and fully man. That's important. Having solved that question in the 300s, in the 400s, we moved on to another question, which was, well, if he's fully God and he's fully man, then does he have two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, that are then somehow together, or does he just have one nature that's human and divine? You can see how significant this is, right? Is it like this, or is it like this? Okay, Council of Chalcedon, 431 AD, they declared the right answer, and if you don't agree with them, you're a heretic, okay? I'm not gonna tell you what the right answer is, because fundamentally, I don't think that one's all that important. And I've had, I'm gonna have Jared turn off the internet if we see everyone going to Wikipedia looking up the Council of Chalcedon, so I'm, I'm just telling you that right now. Wait till after the sermon. So, okay, that one. Two natures, one nature that's both. It, 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 that one's just not really gonna grip you in your day-to-day life. What does this matter? Like, what does it matter whether we acknowledge, yep, it's God, it's just a promise. And so last week, Paul gave us an example of why it matters. Look at Abraham, he says. Look at what happened with Abraham and Hagar versus Abraham and Sarah. How we think about this, whether we think that God makes us promises and keeps them full stop. Or you know, sometimes you're talking to somebody and you're saying something and they're like, oh, I'll take care of that for you. And you know there's an if there. Oh, it sounds like a promise, doesn't it? Oh, I'll take care of that for you. Oh, but you know there's a catch. You know there's a condition. You know there's a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You take care of this problem for me, I'll take care of that problem for you. It sounds like a promise, but you know it's not. It's conditional. If, then. If we think that every time God makes a promise, there's that little unspoken, if you'll obey, if you'll do what I say, if you'll follow everything, if that's the way you view God, Paul says, then wow, that will change how you live. And we talked about that last week with Abraham. Abraham believed when God promised him a son, Abraham believed it. For 10 years, he believed it. And then he just couldn't believe it anymore. He thought there there must be an if. There must be a condition. There must be more to it. As his wife says, this isn't working. God's not doing this. And so he takes it into his own hands. He's like, okay, yep, I gotta make this happen. I gotta do this. It wasn't just a promise from God. There were these conditions attached to it as long as I, so I gotta fill out, I gotta fulfill my part. And then of course, I will have children just like God promised. And Paul looks at like, look at what happened. Look at the disaster that came from that. He picks up, he's picking up that same thing, because remember, they're, they're just reading it, they're just hearing it. He's just talked about how if you go back to thinking the way Abraham went back to thinking, it will be disastrous. You're in slavery again. And so he says in verse one, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, I just want you to think about that statement for a minute. The God of the universe 
to whom everyone owes everything. Every breath you have, all those bazillions of things that are going on in your body right now that you have no control over but that keep you alive, ADP to ADP and all that great stuff from biology, if you remember it, all of that is because God has ordained it and sustains it. We owe every moment we have to God. God could have servants. He could have slaves. He absolutely deserves it. He made everything. It's all his. God could have slaves. He does not what he wants. God doesn't want slaves. He wants sons and daughters. God, the sovereign God of the universe. He doesn't want people who obey him because there's an if attached. He doesn't want people who obey him because he's the boss, and if you don't do it his way, if, there's going to be problems. He wants sons and daughters who obey him because they love him, and they trust him, and they want to. But the thing is, those two ways of living, like one of God can be trusted, he makes promises. As Paul says, we wait in hope for these things. Or... Ah, there's always a condition with God. There's always something you got to do. It's always about, you know, it's always about God getting what he wants and then he'll do what he said. Those two ways of living can look identical. They often do look identical. You know, if if I, imagine I have a servant, right? Someone who I, you know, they they have to do what I say and I say to them, hey, well, well, you know, I totally forgot. Uh, The dog's at home. I forgot to feed him breakfast. He's probably going crazy. Would you go home and feed the dog, please? Now that sounds like a polite request, doesn't it? But if you work for me, then you got to do it because I'm your boss. Certainly, if you are a slave, you got to do it. You have no choice. There is always under there that threat that I'm in charge and I can do what I want. Hey, would you go feed the dog? The only thing you can answer is yes. That's all you can answer if, if that's the way you view things. On the other hand, if I ask a friend or a colleague or a, a child to me, hey, oh, Christian, gosh, I forgot to feed Scruffy. He's probably going, would you go feed Scruffy? He can say no. He, he doesn't owe me. He, I, I, I can't force him. He's grown. He's an adult. He, heck, he's married. He's got his own place to live. If he does it, he does it out of love. He does it out of respect and kindness. He does it because he knows that if he calls me up one day and says, oh, dad, I can't get home in time. Can you go let Gypsy out? She's going to pee all over the floor. I'm going to say, of course. Of course, I'll go and do that. But it looks the same. The slave goes and feeds the dog and the son goes and feeds the dog. It looks the same. But what is underneath it is so different. And Paul says it is so, so important. God has set you free for freedom's sake. He wants you. Paul says God wants you to be free. He doesn't want servants. He deserves them and he absolutely could have them. It's not what he wants. He wants sons and he wants daughters. And listen to how Paul's language changes in verses two and three and onward. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, in verse three, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised. You With Abraham, it was active. He did this thing. He, he decided this isn't working, and he went off and he took another action. This is more passive, if you're a linguistic 
geek, it's in the, it's in the middle voice, not the active voice. This is, it's somebody, it, it, it's being done to you. It's like, okay, fine, yep, we'll, yeah, what's the harm? What's the big deal, right? Sure, all right, well, that, that's good. We'll take care of that too, we'll hedge our bets. I mean, how, what, can the pro, what can possibly go wrong, right? Sure, I know there's a promise, but these guys say this, and we'll do that, and do you hear? Like, along with like more, this more passive sense of if you let this happen, right? Other people are trying to do this to you. If you go along with it, listen to how strong his language is for the consequences. Christ will be of no value to you. Christ is, you are alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. Like those are powerful things to say about what seems like just a simple theological argument. Are we saved by faith alone or not? And Paul's like, you know, <laughs> this is not two natures, one nature, two that are together, one that's got two both in it. This is not one of those debates. This is important because how you think about God, it's how you live. Do you, as Paul says in verse five, do you wait by faith in hope? Because salvation is just a promise. There's nothing you can do, right? As I've said before, we didn't suddenly get like, you know, little red hats on our head or we didn't start glowing green on one arm or anything. It's just a promise. Do we wait in hope that God will keep his promises? Do we live and obey? Do we do all the same things the servants do? Because we trust him. Or do we do all the same things that servants do? Because in the back of our mind, there's always this idea of, uh, you know, there's always a catch with God. There's always an if. You've got to obey if you don't do it. I mean, you've heard me say this 100 times. I'm going to say it 100 more if I'm here another 10 years. We do not obey God to get him to love us. If you're a Christian, God loves you. We obey because God loves us. We still obey. It looks the same, but the heart the, the motivation, what's going on behind it? It is so totally, totally different. And Paul says, wow, that matters. Because that you're gonna need that heart one day. Like things are going to happen to us where we need to trust that there is a God who loves us and has our best interests at heart. Even in the midst of, wow, a messed up world. We are all gonna hear news we do not wanna hear. We are all, in one way, shape, or form, we're all going to hear a doctor say to us, there's nothing more we can do. In one way, shape, or form, we're all going to get that call from the police. Hey, this is officer so-and-so. There's been a terrible accident. We're all going to have people say things to us like, I'm so sorry to tell you this. That, that, that has happened to us, and it will happen again. The world is fallen Scripture says the world is under the control of the evil one and he delights in killing, stealing, and destroying. In those moments, what you think about God matters. If God is a boss, a master who must be obeyed and, or else there are issues, or if God is a father who loves you and who is at work for your good, even in the midst of this wretchedly, dreadful, dreadful world where terrible, terrible things happen because of the choices we once made. That matters, Paul says. Now, if you read in verse six, as he's going on, he says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 
he's doing here what, what God, the ancients do all the time when they write. He's foreshadowing. Right up until now, he's just talked about it's so important that we, we understand this. There are consequences if we don't understand this and live it out. And he's going to tell us, we'll start next week, like, does that mean we do nothing? No, absolutely not. As I've been telling you, we look the same. We look the same in our obedience when we do it out of love as we do when we obey out of threat. But that's coming. We're not here yet. He's foreshadowing that because he jumps back in right after that in verse 7 and he's back in with these guys. Hey, you were running a good race. What happened? And then he does something as he's sort of closing out this section of his letter. This is something he's not done before. Up until now, he's really not spoken about the people who are opposing him. He's just said they're wrong and he's argued why not. Now he does what they always tell you not to do in good, if you're being a good you know, debater, which is he starts attacking them personally. Right? He starts saying to them, you know, that kind of persuasion doesn't come from the one who called you. I'm confident you will agree with me. And those other guys, oh yeah, God will take care of them. They'll have their day. And he ends with what is one of the funniest things in all of the scripture. We, we translate it very um, uh, professionally, very medically. You know, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. The word for circumcised, he said circumcised dozens of times in this language. I've told you all the time, this language makes words by putting little words together. The word for circumcised is literally the word for to cut and the word for around, because that's what circumcision is without getting graphic. You know, you're, you're cutting around, right? And Paul's been saying that over and over again. Those who want to cut around, those who want to cut around, those who say you must cut around, that's their word for circumcision. Here... He takes the word for chop, like with a cleaver, and the word for off and away. And he says, oh, I mean, again, if you're going to translate this with a little more vernacular, kind of the feel for what, what he says, he's like, all those guys who want to just cut around, oh, good grief, just hack it off. <laughs> and men and women would have sat separately when they heard this. And all the guys have got to be going, and all the girls have got to be going, I mean, really, it is very funny the way he writes this. He, he's ending this section on his arguments. He's going to move on to, well, okay, I mean, the obvious question in this is, well, then why be good? I mean, if God loves you and has saved you, and it doesn't, and that's not going to change. Think, think about that. God doesn't want servants that he can hold obedience over. He wants sons and daughters who can thumb their nose at him and walk away. That's nuts. Who, who, seriously, who lives like that? Who exercises authority and power that way? I don't want people that I can control through fear. I don't want people that I control because there are threats. I want people who trust me and who, who obey me because they know that I love them. And so, he, God, God risks. God puts out there, you are saved. If you are not a Christian here today, right, all you have to do is ask for it. You don't have to change anything. You don't have to promise anything. You don't have to say you're going to be good. You don't have to say, okay, God, I'll do this and this and this, and I know this isn't good. And I know You don't have to do any of that. You just have to say, yep, you're right. <laughs> I, I, that's not right. Please save me. 
I believe, Jesus, I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. That's all you have to do. You don't gotta make any protestations. You don't gotta make any grand promises. You know, you don't gotta say, oh, I'll never do that again. God just puts it out there. This is all you have to do. It is a gift. Take it. That's nuts. God is just asking to be walked over. Who exercises authority like that? This guy. I mean, it's all good grief. This is not just in Galatians. It is all through here. God. God makes the first move. God makes the promise. God offers it. And Paul says, it matters that you know that. It matters that you think that. Because you're not going to live in freedom. You're not going to live the life he wants you to live. You're not going to be the person he wants you to be. If you always have in the back of your mind, oh, there's always an if with God. There's always a threat. There's always a catch. There's no threats. There's no ifs. There's no catches. If you want it, it's yours, God says. And then, having given you this gift that I can never take back, then we will talk about obedience. Now that's just, that is crazy. So I have argued with God all week about having to share this story with you. Because I look crazy. And this is going on YouTube. Which means someday I'm going to apply for my TSA pre-check. And they're going to go look me up on YouTube, watch this sermon and say, that guy's nuts, do not let him on a plane. Right. So when we, I've told you the Sunel Dukuman story, right? Where the, that God says, the, the church comes to us, the former pastor is resigned, asks Elizabeth and I to stay. I'm like, no, thank you, I'm honored. No, I'm a computer guy, I'm a missionary. Like, no, you don't get it, this is not me. Um, I have had one vision in my life. I mean, they're, they're, they're in scripture, right? You know, people have visions. Paul had visions. Abraham had visions. Moses had visions. There's lots of people who have visions in scripture. But if you know me, you know, as far as sort of the more charismatic side of life goes, I am a rock. That stuff just bounces off of me. I firmly, 100% believe that all the charismatic gifts are real. They are still in action. I know enough super godly people that have them, like absolutely. Prophecy, tongues, healing, miracles, absolutely, it is all still true. God still does it all, but he doesn't do it through me. And I've had some very well-meaning, very charismatic friends come and lay hands on me and pray over me and drive out the spirit of rockness in me that causes all of this charismatic goodness to just go bunk, bunk, nothing, nada. French, English, I speak in many tongues, Greek, Hebrew, uh, C sharp, C++, Pascal, Java. I know lots of tongues, right? None of them are angelic. It just doesn't work for me. So I've had one vision in my life. It's only happened once, but it did happen. It's when I, I was talking, I was exercising. I was on a treadmill at the YMCA, and I'm just running on that treadmill, and I'm praying because I don't want to do this. I'm not a pastor. I'm a computer guy. And I'm, and, but I'm kind of feeling like God wants us to do this. And, and I'm praying. And all of a sudden, I am standing on the top of a bungee tower. You know those things? They, they, they harness you into the bungee cord and you jump off. And I'm scared of heights. So I've never been on top of a bungee tower before in my life. And I'm standing on, on the edge of this tower. 
And Jesus is standing behind me. And you know, those, you know, in dreams, you just know, I, I can't see him, and, but I just know it. And he's got his arms around my waist, right? And he says to me, jump. I feel the arms. I don't feel a harness. Look down. <laughs> Look around. I see the feet. I see the arms. No harness. And so I say to the almighty creator of the universe, because I mean, I know that's who it is, right? I say, no! You made gravity. You know what's going to happen. I'm going to go straight down, all the way down. It's not the fall that kills you. It's the sudden deceleration at the end. I am going to plummet like a stone. No, I am not jumping. And he laughs. Like I hear this voice behind me laughing. And he leans forward. And I hear right in this ear. Again, he's laughing. He's like, yeah, but I can fly. So jump. So I jumped. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, I tell that story because some of you need to jump and you know who you are. Some of you, the Lord has told you what to do. He has told you what he wants. He's not holding threats over you. I could have said no. God didn't command me to stay and pastor this church. He invited me. If you want to fly, then you got to jump. Now, okay, this is important. Listen, right? The first couple years I was the pastor here were the worst years of my life. More trouble, more turmoil, more being just, just constantly torn apart. You give your heart out to people as a pastor, and they trample on it, and they leave. And they go somewhere else that's more conducive to whatever it is they want. I had to start armoring myself in ways I didn't know existed. Those first couple years. I have been through a civil war in West Africa. I will take the war over the first couple years of pastoring this church. They were awful. But I didn't hit the ground. And look, we're still here. This church is thriving. This church was not thriving 10 years ago. God said, I'm going to do this. Now jump. And here we are. We just came through two years of a global pandemic. Do you know how many churches shut down in the last two years? Do you know how many churches went bankrupt, had to take out loans, collapsed over this? We paid off a million and a half dollars in debt, paid all of our bills, and put money in the bank. We are still here. We are still growing. The Lord keeps every promise he makes. And if I'd said no, he'd have brought somebody else in to do it. He keeps every promise he makes. But some of you in here, and you know who you are, the Lord has told you what to do, and it feels like jumping off a bungee tower. I so get it. I so get it. It felt exactly like jumping off a bungee tower to me. And I am not promising you that those first couple of years are going to go well. I am not promising you that it's going to be great. Sometimes, yeah, you do fall for a long time. But if Jesus says you will not hit the ground, then you will not hit the ground. He has never lied about anything. You are not suddenly the first person that he's decided to deceive. 
Some of you know you're supposed to jump. And again, I don't know. He has, I don't know, again, that, you know, that charismatic word of knowledge stuff, it just bounces off me. I don't know who it is. I don't know what you're supposed to do. I'm not going to greet, do not worry. I'm not going to greet you at the door at the end going, you know I was preaching to you, right? So I have no idea. I just know all week I've been telling God, I don't want to share that story. I look like I'm nuts, right? And all week God's spirit has been prompting me, yeah, you're not the only person that I tell to jump. They need some encouragement. You need to jump. If the Lord has told you to jump, wow, you need to jump. I would not trade the last 10 years for anything. In, in spite of how bad the first couple were, I wouldn't trade this, us, here, now, for anything. Wow, I would not trade the stuff that's going to happen in the next 10 years for anything. If the Lord has told you, even though it's crazy, right? Jump off the tower. Oh, for goodness sakes, brothers and sisters, jump. Everything he says is good. Everything he says is right. Listen to what Paul keeps telling them. You are saved by the promise of God. Nothing will ever change that. You can't mess that up. There's nothing you can do to lose that. There's nothing you can do that will make him stop loving you. There's nothing you can do that will make him turn his back away from you. He has promised it is done. Now, next week, we'll get into the, yeah, that still means we obey. It still means we live. It doesn't mean we just sit around all day. Oh, but the heart behind it is so different. That the heart behind our obedience is never fear. You remember what scripture says, perfect love casts out fear. It's never fear. It's never worry. It's never, oh, there's a threat. If I don't do this, God's going to get me. Oh, if I don't do this, God's not going to love me. Oh, if I don't do this, God's not going to save me. Those are lies from hell. If you are a follower of Christ, God loves you. You're saved. End of discussion. There's nothing you can do to change that. If you're not a follower of Christ, all you have to do is ask for it. Now, here, Lord, I believe this. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead. Then that promise, that gift is extended to you too. Brothers and sisters, if God's told you to jump, you can trust him. If God has made promises to you, and like Abraham, it's been 10 years, you can trust him. If God has said anything to you, wow, do it. It is so worth it. It is not easy, <laughs> okay? Hear me say that. I am not saying it is easy. I'm not saying it's gonna be great. I'm not saying unicorns and rainbows. I'm saying it is good and right and you will come out the other side being grateful for all that he has done. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I, I, I know this is true. Like I know completely 100% that this is how you deal with people. That this is all throughout scripture. Good. Paul goes back to the beginning of Genesis to prove this. It is all throughout the scriptures. Your kindness and your goodness. You initiate. The Assyrians did not come to you and ask you how to be saved. You sent Jonah to them. To the most horrible people on the planet at the time. You sent a prophet to tell them that you wanted them back. I know this is how you are. And yet I forget and I don't live like it. I live thinking that, that you intend harm for me. I live thinking that, that your, your, your goodness and kindness are conditional. 
I live believing that lie from hell that if I don't perform, then you're not going to love me and you're not going to save me and you're not going to watch over me. And I, I, that, I know that must be true for my brothers and sisters here as well. Jesus, forgive us and change us. Please, forgive us and change us by the power of your spirit inside us. Rewrite whatever that is in our hearts that continually thinks that there is an if attached to your goodness and your kindness and your promises. And Lord, I pray for for whoever it is in here that you have been speaking to that needs encouragement to do what you have said. Jesus, I pray you would encourage them. I, I pray that you would do for them what you did for me. I mean, I felt your arms around me. I heard your voice in my ear. I pray you'd do that for them. They would feel you and hear you and know that you are good. Know that everything you say is good and right, that you can be trusted, that it is not a promise of an easy life. Scripture assures us that's not true. All who follow you will be persecuted, we're told. But it is good. Jesus, encourage us. We are your people, but, but you know how fickle we are. You know how easily our hearts are turned aside from these truths. As Paul wraps up his argument in this section and moves on to a new one next week, Jesus, wrap that up in our hearts. Wrap it up tight that you are kind and you are gracious. And though our experiences of you are different, you are still God. You are still good. You are still in charge of the universe. You still have a good plan. You are still working everything out, though it does not seem like it many times. Jesus, work those truths deep into our hearts that you are the sovereign Lord of the universe, that you have spoken over us, that these things are true. They will never change. Time may not have caught up to what you have decreed, but it is true, and it will. Lord, be gracious to us. Remember what Scripture says. We're dust. We're like those flowers that, that sprout up one, one season and then they're gone. Be gracious to us, Jesus. Work these truths in our heart that we live like Paul wants us to live. We live in freedom. We live like sons and daughters. We know whatever happens in the world that you are our good father, that when you call us to obey, it is for our good. And we obey with joy because everything you say is good. Jesus, be gracious to us. We are in need of your graciousness. We pray this in your name. Amen.